the most important thing to me was you have to pick your own strategy, not try to duplicate what others are doing. And you have to make your product great at a few important things. You don't have to compete feature for feature, but if you really make it amazingly good at a few things, people buy a product not for all the functions it does, but is it great at something specific? And as long as you pick something that's important and do it amazingly differentiatedly, you can win. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. So I live in the northernmost part of San Francisco in the marina. And what I do not miss is this commute. My first ever job was on Matilda on the other side of the freeway. And I used to drive it. It would take me an hour, hour and a half to drive it. And then I got in a car accident and I was too broke to buy another car. And so I used to bike from the mission to Portrero Hill, put it on the Caltrain. There was only a limited, not an express train that would take me down to Sunnyvale. And then I'd bike to my first office and I'd start cranking cold calls. That was, that was my, that was my <laughs> So it was, a, it was a, a fun or not so fun trip down memory lane coming here. So I appreciate it. <laughs> great, uh, great to have you here. <laughs> Where are we? Can you maybe explain what room we're in here? We're in the second floor of our cloud, what we call executive business center. And it's cloud storage is the name we we use technical names to right. describe all the rooms. I'm going to jump into things because yeah. I have a limited yeah. amount of time and your team's going to kill me if I go even a second over. So I'm just going to jump right into things. I always start these the exact same way, which is I will read your background back to you. I'll probably screw something up. Tell me what I screw up and then we'll kind of go from there. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah, it's cool. All right. You went to IIT Madras, yes. right? Did I pronounce that yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. And then you actually dropped out within six months of that, right? And then you went to Princeton, came to the U.S., you got your MBA from Stanford. In the midst of the Princeton to Stanford run, you spent a couple of years at McKinsey. Then you had pretty much your whole career at Oracle, just over 22 years. And then in January of 2019, you became the CEO of Google Cloud. Yeah, that's close to right. I was at IIT Madras till I joined Princeton. I actually didn't drop out. I finished a year there. You did. But my brother and I had actually got admitted to Princeton and then we deferred for a year and went to IIT because my mom was not well and we needed to stay back in India. And then we came here. And then the only other thing, after business school, I worked for McKinsey in Europe for a couple of years. So okay. that's all. But other than that, you're right on. These IIT schools, I had the founder of Freshworks on, yes. uh, Girish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also went to the same school, didn't he? Yes. Lots of people did. Sundar at Google also went to IIT. Oh, okay. did you know? I didn't know him. Okay. But lots of people at Google, at startups, lots of people go to IIT. Is there a comp for the US version of this university system? Is there anything similar? I would say there isn't a direct comp, but uh, IIT is similar to MIT and some of the other technical universities here. Yeah. 
I have had a pretty tough time researching you because you keep such a low profile for given the job that you do. I went through pretty much every page of Google. I thought I was going to have to go to Ask Jeeves or something at some point because I had to go through the serious archives to find anything. I got to ask you, like, why? I've spoken to a lot of big company folks that have pretty big jobs and usually there's some stuff. Why do you keep such a low profile? I mean, my family and I have always thought about the job first, not me as a personality, you know. And my wife's an oncologist and a professor of medicine, and we have a 13-year-old boy, and the three of us do stuff together. And I have not felt, in addition to everything I do at work, needing to have a big social media or publicity profile. Yeah, I don't even think you got a Twitter until you joined Google. No. Yeah, and there's no way you run that thing, so it doesn't even matter. I actually had to research your brother in order to get to know you and your upbringing. Where'd you grow up in India? We grew up in a bunch of different places. We were born in a place in a very small town about 200 miles from Madras, which is now called Chennai. We grew up there till we were about six years old, five years old. We then moved, my dad was a chemical engineer, and we moved with him to the north of India, a place called Durgapur, which is near Calcutta for two years. And then we came to Bangalore. And this was Bangalore before it was a tech hub. And we were in Bangalore from the time we were about seven till we graduated from high school. In Chennai, again, I go back to Garish from Freshworks, who I think also grew up there and I think definitely had their first offices there. And he was telling me some war stories of the early days of Chennai when they were building their office there. The power would go out like several hours a day randomly. So whatever juice they had on their computer is what they could, that's how much code they could write. That air conditioning would go out. There was no parking. Like it was kind of tricky. Is that, was that kind of your experience as well or was it a little bit different? When I grew up in Bangalore, I'd never seen a computer. I mean, I just, we didn't have computers in those days. The first time I wrote a program was, you know, at IIT, you wrote programs on a punch card machine that went into like a mainframe and you got your answer back. You got to run it one job once a day. So you had to be absolutely perfect if you wanted to finish. And I remember coming to Princeton and I needed to work to put myself to college. So I said, let me find the highest paying job on an hourly basis. And I went to the job board and I saw a thing called computer programming. And I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> but it pays four times the rate of food <laughs> services. So happy to do it. And so I went to the computer lab and it was downstairs in the math building library. And I remember seeing they had a a collection of Macintosh computers. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. It's the first time I've seen a computer. We had all these things that Garish talks about, like power outages, which would go on like in the summer when you really needed the power, they would shut the off. Air, yeah. Yeah, because when I grew up, air conditioning was not at all common. So you just learned to live with the heat, but you had ceiling fans, they would go off, lights, power would go off. We used to do homework at nights when power was cut off with candlelight. So there was all kinds of stuff. But, you know, growing up as a kid, you just don't realize that's not the norm and you just sort of do it. You know, it's just the way it is. Totally, totally. You and your brother, there's something in the water. I've never seen anything like it. You're twins, yes. right? 
Do you look identical? We do look very similar. Still? Even today. Yeah. Today, probably a little bit more different, but even as recently as 10 years ago, my dad would sit down when we went back to India after being in the United States, my dad would sit us down and talk to us for a while. And I'd be like, dad, you're really talking about George. But my mom never, ever got us, you know, confused. I don't know what it is. She could watch us walk away from her bags to her and she could figure it out. But tons of people come up to us, to us in the airport and they'll clap you in the back and it's like, hey, George. And I'm like, I think you got the wrong person. <laughs> could you ever work together? Besides the fact that no one would be able to know who's in what meeting and you could do some pretty nefarious things that way. But could you ever actually work together, do you think? We would be able to work together. It's just we've chosen never to because it's just a little too weird. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it doesn't feel like an accident. So he's the CEO of NetApp. It doesn't feel like happenstance that you just both happen to be very high achieving, I guess. I know you've talked about your mom a lot and I've read things that she was a big source of inspiration and discipline for you both growing up. Is that true? Yes. She grew up at a time in India when women didn't have a lot of opportunity, but she was a real trailblazer. She studied and she used to teach science in school. And she brought us up with a set of values that all of us, you know, it's not just my twin brother and I, but also my older brothers all felt were important. And she brought discipline to us. And so she never valued what we did based on our accomplishments. And so that was something that actually, when you're growing up, gives you a sense of your effort is more important than the outcome. Mm. That was something we learned as young boys. So at the dinner table growing up, the question maybe wouldn't be, did you finish your homework? Rather, what are you working on? That's right. And not, did you get X grade, but did you study and did you understand the actual reason they, that the plant cells divide this way versus animal cells divide another way? She was more interested in knowing that we were curious, that we were wanting to learn things than the outcome of the grade. With your son today, do you feel similarly? Absolutely. He's an amazing kid, way smarter than I ever was, yeah. but I always tell him it's more important to be inquisitive and think and appreciate the world rather than worry about, did I get this grade in this test or so on and so forth, because those in the end don't matter. But credit to your mom, that's not easy. I can sit here and pontificate about how nice it must be to parent your kid that way, but that's not an easy way of doing it. Especially in our culture, like, there's a report card. For you, like, there's a revenue number. You know, like, we're focused on outcomes. So I can't imagine it's always very easy to just focus on the inputs rather than the outputs. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was very difficult for her. It was difficult for us, too. But when your parents give you that freedom to feel that way, it gives kids a lot more freedom to feel comfortable that way. But it was, it's not an easy thing. You know, society tends to measure everything. They measure output always. And you're always held as a scorecard in every circumstance, right? When you're a kid, you're being graded in school. When you go to university, it's like, which university? What are you studying? How are you doing? And then when you get to work, it's almost instantly you're being graded. But for us, it was always, for me, even in the early part of the job that I did was always about learning more. 
I have a book that I love that I talk about on the show pretty often. It's uh, by Bill Walsh, the Niners coach. Yeah. And uh, do you know Bill Walsh? I don't know him, but I've, I obviously... The legend, Bay Area legend. He walked into this most stinker football team of all time with the Niners. And then ultimately he wrote a book reflecting on his time as a leader called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And, it, you know, obviously it, it's alluding to the name, but when he w walked into the locker room the first day, he went straight to the assistants and showed them how to answer the phone. And then he goes straight to the players and he taught them how to tie their shoes. And the whole point of this was being present in the process and letting the score take care of itself. 100%. He was a great guy, you know, and I always felt growing up that my mom was more interested, my parents were more interested in how we were doing and whether we remained curious as opposed to measuring a score particularly when you are measured all the time and you're only worried about how your grades are, et cetera, you tend to get fatigue at a very young age. Life's a journey. Getting fatigued when you're a teenager and not wanting to do more can become a real challenge. And that was one of the biggest things we were fortunate to have. I grew up in the Bay Area. Like I grew up not too far down, down the street from here. And do you ever worry about your son growing up in an environment like this? When I went to school here, it was intense, like it was gnarly, and it was output-oriented. Yeah, I do worry about that for my son. I think my wife and I do our best to surround him with that there's so much more to life than just grades and scores and being the smartest person. You are an individual that constitutes values, that constitutes your spirit, that constitutes your sense of hope and optimism. And it's all that, not just what you're measuring as what you accomplish that makes you who you are. And that's hard to do in the Bay Area. And your parents, are they both, in, did they come to America as well, your mom and dad? They both passed away. My dad came much less frequently. He really enjoyed living where he grew up as a young child. My mom came and lived nearby us for the last six years of her life, which was really amazing because she got to see her grandkids and not just see them, but experience them on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. But she passed away last year. I'm sorry to hear that. But how special must have that been? Oh, it's amazing. Is it weird the last five, six years when she's been here and you're the CEO of Google Cloud, you know, you're the president of Oracle before this. You probably live in a pretty nice house in wherever you live in the Bay Area. So does your brother. Very different from your upbringing. The like, revenue of this company is more than the GDP of most countries. Did you ever look at her and be like, gosh, like, this is weird. <laughs> you know, like, this is, like, who would have thought? I do. There are moments where you go, who would have thought? You know, <laughs> particularly, <laughs> we used to sit down and look, reminisce with her about the place we were born and the place we grew up. And, you know, it was a tiny town. And where I was born, it was a really tiny town. In India, they wouldn't even call it a town. They would have called it a village back then. Yeah, We would sit outside the house on the what's called a veranda, which is like outside the main building. And she would teach us until we were like four years old. She taught us at home and we'd be writing, you know, numbers and letters on a little, what they call a slate, which is a, like a mini chalkboard. And I can still picture that and picture now. And yeah, it's totally weird. I would have never thought that this journey would have happened. This is going to be a weird question and answer it however you may. But 
Do you ever long for that simplicity again? Yeah, no question. There's parts of me that see that having a simpler life without all the responsibility and all that, there's a lot of attraction to it. No yeah. question. Yeah, yeah. Today, your calendar is probably 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. booked absolutely solid. And you probably didn't even know you were walking into a podcast right before this. <laughs> you know, I just imagine there's something to be said for knowing what that other side feels like and maybe just reflecting on that every once in a while. Uh, absolutely. And you know, the thing that's great about having that memory is it's still like really fresh. I can feel it how it was. I was telling my son, for instance, he was asking me, hey, dad, well, how do you spend your summers? I said, summer was really simple for us. School got over. I still remember last day of exams, coming home like so thrilled. And the next two, two and a half months, there were no such things as camps or anything like that. We played on the street with kids in our neighborhood. Cricket was the big thing. And the beautiful thing about cricket, if you've ever played it, is it can fill seven hours piece of cake. It doesn't, it's not like, oh my God, I got played this game and it's over in an hour and a half. So you could play six and seven hours. So we'd start at like 8.30, play till noon, then have lunch with our family, with my mom, for example. And then it's a little hot in the afternoons in the summer in India. So we'd read but then come back out about three o'clock and play till late. And that was summer. It was very different than what he's doing with his summer. Right. But it was so much fun. And I, that always keeps me grounded. Last question on this. And it's something that I think a lot about because I get very nostalgic about much simpler times in, in my life. And I have an amazing way of renormalizing what never used to be normal for me. Do you worry about that with your son? Just like, man, how do I impose some of the things that made me who I am, that gave me my character, when his life is going to be so much easier. Like my upbringing was a lot easier than my parents who immigrated here. Do you ever think about that? Everyone has is born in a certain set of circumstances. I think my son has different challenges he faces. It's just because he didn't necessarily start in the same economic circumstances that I did. It doesn't mean he doesn't have to build fortitude and responsibility and discipline in his own way. Today, for example, he has a lot more choices than I did. So that's a form of having some fortitude to choose a certain set of things and not do other things. And, you know, I'm super proud of him. He got into Taekwondo when he was five And he got his second degree back belt just a couple of months ago. And I was like, oh, my God, like I could not have thought of getting that, you know, that age, (laughs) that age. So, see, when I grew up as a kid, I didn't know about the rest of the world, right? I mean, you kind of read in books and other things, but there was no social media. There was no instant connectivity. You've never even seen a laptop. So, I'd never seen any of it. Yeah. So, I thought I had the whole world at my disposal. So, I didn't feel constrained in any particular way. You know, I didn't feel like I couldn't aspire to do anything. It was... I just didn't know how big the world was. Right. And I thought, okay, of course I'm going to do something <laughs> and now, you're jaded. now you're jaded. <laughs> Speaking of choices, tell me if this is true or not. I've heard when you first came to America, you went to your first sandwich shop and you were blown away that there was more than one bread option at the shop. Is that true? <laughs> well, you know, I went to university at Princeton. Right. When I got to university, the whole campus was locked down still because it was International Students Orientation Week, so all the dining facilities were not available. 
So if you go to Princeton, there's this place called Hoagie Haven. Mm -hmm. It's a big sandwich shop. And so that was one of the few places that was available, cheap sandwiches. So I decided to go to order one. And in New Jersey and the East Coast, you have Italian sandwiches and you have to have your order in your head. They take sandwiches seriously. Yeah, they take sandwiches seriously. And so you get all these people walking up. I want tuna on rye with mustard, lettuce, tomato, pickles. I want provolone cheese, not this and not that. In India, you grew up with one type of bread. So I go up there and the guy looks at me and says, what kind of sandwich you want? I basically didn't have anything to say. So he says, okay. He's probably thinking this guy, oh my God, he's killing me, this guy. So he starts, what kind of bread do you want? So I'm like, what kind do you have? And it's like rye, pumpernickel, <laughs> sourdough, whole wheat, white. I'm like, oh my God. So we pick one. I, I pick one because I was just like, got to get this guy off like yelling. I thought it was all done. He goes, what kind of cheese do you want? And I was like, what do you mean by what kind of cheese? He's like Swiss, American, provolone, mozzarella. I'm like, oh my God, I don't even know what half of them are. <laughs> so I picked American. And then if you're in it in Italian shop in New Jersey, you get a thousand different kinds of meat, capicola, mortadella, this, that. I'm like, what the hell? So at one point, as I said, put whatever you like on it. That's so funny. It was crazy. That's so funny. It was so crazy. And after that, the owner of the place came and saw me and said, look, I'm from the Middle East. I'm telling you, here's a simple thing. Just write down this order. And when you come in, just give it in. So after that, I had like a little note. I want this that I could go in and just give it to them. And the guys used to start laughing when I came in. They were like, oh, the guy's back here with this little note. Because yeah, welcome to America. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, man. I have a couple of questions that I want to ask you about Oracle, if that's okay. Yeah, and yeah, then sure, let's just dive sure. into the Google stuff. So um, you ended as the president of Oracle. And you did that for, what, 14, 15 years about reporting straight to Larry. What was your job when you went into Oracle? I joined as a product manager. Like an individual contributor. Absolutely. I, I tell people when I looked down, I saw the ground. <laughs> and by the end of it, when you left, there was 35,000 people in your organization. Like, I'm not even going to get into the stats because it's staggering. You basically ran the whole place. What was the hardest jump that you had to make in that ladder of your career at Oracle? Like which one, I don't know how else to ask it, which one was the hardest jump to make? I think the hardest jump that I had to make was when I went from being a product manager to running an engineering team. So the background that was, you know, the internet had happened. Prior to internet, the application design was what was called client-server computing. Client-server was Backend systems like databases ran on machines called servers, and the application ran on a desktop, you know, on a Windows desktop typically. Then internet came along and people were like, oh my God, we got to get a browser client connecting. So where does the stuff that sat on the laptop or desktop go? It has to go somewhere. And so there was a new class of software called application servers that were growing. Oracle had tried for four years to get into that and really had not made any headway. And so, you know, they were like, well, here you go. As your first job running an engineering team, here's a team of 40. Welcome to Oracle. <laughs> Why did you go build a product? 
and I still remember thinking to myself, oh my God, we're way behind. There, there was a company called BA Systems that was way ahead in that market. How are we going to catch up? But I learned a lot. The most important thing to me was you have to pick your own strategy, not try to duplicate what others are doing. And you have to make your product great at a few important things. You don't have to compete feature for feature. But if you really make it amazingly good at a few things, people buy a product not for all the functions it does, but is it great at something specific? And as long as you pick something that's important and do it amazingly differentiatedly, you can win. To be honest with you, I still remember thinking, this could be my last job. I could get fired over it. I hope to God I get my green card before I get terminated. But then one evening, I remember thinking to myself, you know, it's a risky as hell project, but there's no downside because the company had failed for so long on it. You can't do worse. The expectations were at the bottom. So it was just stuff we learned. Was that the hardest point for you in that ride? That was the hardest part because you, your reputation as can you be an engineering leader? This is your first like leadership gig at the company. You want to do a great job. Most people had risen through the engineering ranks. And here you are, this product manager is now going to run this project. How likely is that to succeed? So that was, there was a lot of questions, a lot of raised eyebrows, and just had to do it. Even though you know how to code, did you have to earn more street cred? than the engineering managers that... No question. Yeah. No question. Your burden of proof was higher. I had my burden of proof way higher, but I felt in order to do that job, I had to actually get in and really look in much more detail of the designs and things like that. And you had to run an operational cadence. How quickly are we getting new project features out? How quickly are we doing code reviews, etc.? So there was a lot I learned doing it. And I felt everyone gets to do the job the way they want to do it. And so no one had ever come in the company from my background to run that. And I was like, so what? There's always time for a first. So cool. Then you went on to lead 60 software acquisitions at the company, which most people forget Oracle was incredibly acquisitive. Maybe most people don't forget. I just forget because that feels like a relic of the past to me now. And 56 of those 60 were within three years, beat all the board projections. How wild was that time in Oracle? That was an amazing company. It still is. But at that time, that was an amazing company. Yeah. That was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The first thing we felt was you can't build all the software yourself. There are some amazing teams out there. We found great companies out there. And we always look for the right technical talent we had a super disciplined way to integrate them into Oracle and then distribute them to a sales organization. And, you know, 90% of acquisitions fail. Our ratio was the exact opposite, but it was not by luck. There was enormous discipline placed on how to do it right. Can I ask you, and you don't have to say, but was there an acquisition that you had doubts about, that you were wrong, where you told Larry, dude, I don't know about this one. Or maybe the inverse. Was there one where you wish you could do it again? I mean, I would say there are two or three types in these acquisitions, right? There's a set that are just very complementary to what you're doing. And so it's natural that you're going to acquire and it's just going to get escape velocity. 
Then there's a set that you look at where you go, this is early. I'm not sure the market's going to take off, but let's see. The first example was a company we bought called Golden Gate. It did database replication. You know, it was literally like you're acquiring a product, attaching it to the giant database we had. It just exploded in the market. It really took off. The second one, which was more, I would say, speculative at that time, was an acquisition we did in the area around identity management. Identity management in those days was most people before the internet, which I think most people probably don't remember and kind of dates how old I am, but they didn't realize that the average person had access only to a small number of corporate applications. And then when the internet came along, everybody was given access to, you have to fill out your own expense report and you have to do this and you have to do that. So the number of applications users had to access exploded. And so to reduce the risk of that, people introduced this notion of single sign-on. You use one password to access all of it. It was super speculative when we got into that with a small acquisition. People were like, this is never going to be reality. And this is the promise of one password. It's always existed and we've tried it in companies. But the internet made that possible. It was that that made that possible. And so that acquisition, we were worried about, will it succeed? Will it become big? But, you know, we bought it at the right time just before it grew. Incredible. I have heard that when you joined Google, tell me if this is wrong, because this stat feels a little unbelievable, that you visited 450 customers in the first three months. Quick math, that's like six to seven a day, not counting weekends. Is that true? Yeah. Your day was literally customer to customer, morning to night, basically. We had a lot of customer meetings in the mornings. We'd start very early because of European customers and then go till about noon. And then I did some of the Asian customers late in the evening just for the time zone. But I've always said, if you want to change an organization, the only person who makes a decision to work with our technology or not is a customer. And it's customer by customer. And so the first step was to understand, for those customers who chose us, why did they? What were they happy about? What they not happy about? And then second, we also talked to some customers who said, Thomas, I know you from Oracle. I've never done business with Google, and here's why. And so that process of listening allowed us to figure out what we needed to focus and fix. So right now you report to Sundar. When you were leaving Oracle, did you ever think like, all right, I want to go do like kind of what my brother's doing. Like, I want to run the whole thing. Did you ever? I'll be honest. When I left Oracle, I remember telling my wife, I've been at a place for 20 years. I want to go do a smaller company. I don't want to go to a big company and I want to do something that I control the whole show. Similar to like Nikesh goes to, was at Google, then goes to, and then ultimately ends up at Palo Alto Networks, runs the show, smaller company, grows that type of thing. Yeah. And when I left, I had no, I joked my wife, I said, the likelihood I'd be in a software company is like 5%. Why? Because I want to do something different, you know? Go, go run a sports team or something? No, no, not a sports <laughs> team. I actually, I told my wife I want to work in something in environmental sustainability. Yeah. What was the first moment when you talked, because you had to interview with, I assume, a bunch of people here. What was the first moment of like, maybe, maybe I do want this job? I'd never met Sundar before. You did, so you didn't have a pre-existing relationship? No, I'd never met him before. I'd heard of him, but yeah. I'd never met him. 
And when we started the conversation, it was not about a job. It was about, hey, we've got this cloud division. Can you give us a view of why we think it's not growing as fast as we'd like, et cetera? And I said, well, I'll think about it and give you my view of what you guys should be thinking about. And I still remember what you should be thinking about because that was not what we should be thinking about. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was that kind of the way it started. And as I thought more about it and spoke to some customers, I remember thinking, these guys have great technology. They just don't know how to bring it to market. It's a solvable problem. Whenever you get an idea about a job, it's a question of what's the opportunity? What are you going to bring to the table? And what are you going to learn from it? Because that's the combination of things that either makes the job interesting and rewarding over time. And it was that recipe that I was trying to figure out in my mind. But it it didn't start as, Thomas, welcome. Let's talk to you about coming and running this. Because if it had started that way, I would have probably been like, no way. Because I was not thinking about doing a job. It's always like that. It's always like that. This business is, put lightly, no joke. 6.3 billion of revenue this last quarter. And the thing that blows my mind is that it's growing so fast. It's, it's like this is like a 30 to 40% grower quarter over quarter on a pretty big base. The amount of employees that work in this organization is bigger than pretty much any company in the world. Do you think self-awareness is in your DNA or do you think it's been nurtured over time? Self-awareness, I think I was made aware of it very young. I wouldn't say I was born with it. You know, who knows what you're born with or not. But I remember being quite young and knowing, being quite self-aware, knowing what, as an example, what was I good at? What was I not good at? And what did I, some of the stuff that I was not good at, I enjoyed trying to get good at it. And some of it, I was just like, this is not that rewarding. And I'm not that interested in becoming great at it. You know what I mean? The reason I ask is because when there's so many people in your organization, you're so insulated. There's layers and layers and layers around you. That's the way that these companies are designed. How do you know when you're doing well? Because most people, tell me if I'm wrong, are going to just kind of tell you what you want to hear. Like, It's a great question. Either you need to be damn good at looking yourself in the mirror, or is someone going to, are you going to walk out of this room and it's like your whole comms team is going to listen to this podcast. Is someone going to tell you like, hey, you sounded terrible. You know, someone, I, someone I, to be honest that. with you, there's definitely an element of that that you have to guard against. But part of it, I spent a lot of time actually with the people who make it happen. And if you look at our company, it's, you know, our division is pretty simple. It's we have engineers who build products. We have salespeople and customers, you know, engineers, technical people who help customers use it. And we have service people who make sure if a customer has a problem, we can fix it. And so the magic really happens at that level. How do you make sure that you don't get isolated? I, I mean, Lots of organizational leaders get into a model where they don't really meet the teams. They work in, I'll do one-on-ones with my direct reports, but I never meet the team. And that's not my style. My style is to roll up my sleeves, to listen to where our sales teams, our engineers, our support organization, our supply chain people are finding trouble, and then jumping right in. And I've always said, the first thing you have to do is to be 
in the grind with the teams because when they see you aware of it, they feel more confident giving you feedback. The second thing I've always said is it's important to learn how to grow as a person and not worry about getting negative feedback if you can make it constructive. Mm-hmm. When I joined in 2019, I felt to f- grow the organization, it always comes down to people, products, process. You know, you have to hire the leadership team to build an organization that can scale, and you have to hire them top down because you cannot build an organization bottom up with the wrong leadership at the top. So, one is people, second, products. You know, at the end of the day, we're a products company. We have to have amazing products, and you have to know where we want to be amazing and which segments we said we're not going to do. Because when we got into the market, we were much earlier on than some of the other cloud providers. And so there's an initial desire to do everything the other players are doing. And I said, no, you pick the areas you're going to be great at. And the third thing is what people don't realize is most of our organization has joined during COVID. And when I joined in 2019, I had no idea we're going to have this thing called COVID in 2020. So not only were we bringing people in, but you had to make them feel part of an organization when the vast majority of people had never met their manager. They had never met their customer. They had never met their peer group. And so that takes a lot of work. And the only way to do that is to actually be with the team. And it's an area of balance that you need to strike. You have to learn to spend a lot of time with the team, but you also need to find time for yourself to think about what are the areas we need to improve in, et cetera. So you don't just get all day, just work in the day to day. One of the things that when I was putting myself in your shoes that would keep me up at night with an organization this big is that there's a lot of smart people in these buildings, but there's so many layers I believe that innovation comes from experimentation. And I believe that generally speaking, experimentation happens from the bottoms up. And when there's so many layers, there's so many people, a lot of the time, I think what most big companies get really nervous about is losing those good ideas just in the noise. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think about that? Because you're going to need another act. You're going to need another product. You're going to need another set of features. Maybe there's another Google cloud that Google finds that builds another $50 billion business for this thing. 100%. We worry about that all the time. If you live with that worry and you don't take action, you'll never sleep, right? Because it's always a worry. Every night, there'll be another worry that keeps you up. And I actually don't do it that way. The part that I think you need to do is to set up structures where for every eight managers, you have... 64 to 80 employees, right? Every manager typically has 10 people working for them. You need to set the boundary conditions on how we're innovating and which markets we're in, for instance, and then allow people the freedom to try things within that. And that is true not just in engineering and identifying great products and coming up with the next breakthrough idea, but also to allow a person as a salesperson who is talking to a customer. A customer in Colombia and South America buys very differently than a customer in New York City. And you have to let them feel the sense that you're empowering them, you're entrusting them, and that you help them succeed. Because 
If the answer is always, well, the leadership and headquarters knows better than the person who is close to the customer or who is actually doing the engineering project, then you're setting yourself up for failure. In the interview process, when you joined or when you were thinking about joining, the DNA of this company is very different than Oracle's. Yeah. It's very B2C. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oracle is the OG B2B. They did. They got it better than anybody. Exactly. How much were you like, Sundar, are you serious about this? Are you going to give me what I need to do this? Like, are we going to get all the salespeople? And are we really serious about building a new muscle in this organization that didn't exist before? Like, how much did you have to poke and prod to make sure that you're going to get what you needed? It's a great question. When you join a job, when a new job, you take a week to get the lay of the land. At the end of that first week, I remember telling my wife, it's really simple. She said, how do you think about this new job? I said, it's really simple. Whatever I worried about at Oracle, I don't worry about at Google. Whatever I didn't worry about at Oracle, I got to worry about at Google. And she's like, give me an example. I was like, contracts. How do you write enterprise contracts? Where do you do forecasting? How do you do capacity planning? I'm like, all the stuff we took for granted in one place, I have to think about. So that was something that was just the nature of the job and the nature of the company. One of the things that I remember talking to Sundar about, which gives you a sense of the business. I was like, look, if you look at cloud computing and the business we're in, there's a very high fixed cost. And when I say fixed cost, you have to have a certain number of engineers to build the products you need. You have to make capital investments in data centers, networks, all this stuff, machines, et cetera. And you need a certain number of salespeople to generate enough revenue to cover the cost of all that. The reason that's an important thing is that if you are not going to invest big, you will not get any returns. And so it's better not to be in the business than to be in half. Especially as a public company, that means you're signing up for some pretty serious losses for quite some time. Exactly. Be trying to grow the That's upfront right. infrastructure, especially like data centers. That's right. Billions of dollars. That's right. And so you need to have that long-term commitment and fortitude because if you go in half and then you're like, oh my God, this, this, then you've just wasted a lot of money. When I joined, I was 100% clear that we know exactly how and when to get profitable and we have full control over it. But you have to be willing to invest to gain share. And I think the management team here, you know, Sundar, Ruth, et cetera, very smart. They also understood the dynamics of that business. It's just one of those things. You laugh about it. I was like, everything I took for granted, I have to remind myself, oh, no, we should probably double click in this area a little bit more because just because you used to do it one way at Oracle and you knew it, maybe you have to do it a different way here. So it took some time to bring the organization around to that level of maturity. Is the public cloud, is this the mother of all markets? Like, is this just one of the craziest, largest groundswells you've ever seen? Here's the way I look at it. If you look at smartphones, smartphones converged cameras, communication devices, and computers. But they made it available to every human being. And it has been the mother of God personal computing markets, mm -hmm. right? Because it truly made, I mean, they were personal computers, but they were not in a configuration that you could use all the time and with you all the time. Now, for companies, 
what cloud computing is doing is really bringing computation so that it's literally a click away from you and that you can make it useful, personal, and use it for a large number of needs that you couldn't do before. I mean, just think about it. Right now, there's a company in Chile in South America that's working on sustainable food products that's using the exact same technology that sits under Google search. That's the power of cloud. Without cloud, they would have had to go rent a data center, hire computer systems administrators, all that stuff. And at the end of the day, they would have probably said, you know what, let's try to keep our accounts on paper. It's such a pain to use all this stuff. You see what I mean? And as a food products company, is it seriously worthwhile for us to hire like 10 IT staff when what we should be trying to do is build more sustainable food products? So it's really about consumerizing and making the technology that can run any business available for everybody, everybody. And to make it so that an entrepreneur in Sofia in Bulgaria, in Warsaw in Poland, in Bangalore in India, can sit there and go, how do I choose the technology that sits under Google search that probably can handle scale really well? How do I make sure that my little idea can be built on that? And if it succeeds, can go to the whole world. That's the promise of cloud. And that's why it's the mother of God opportunities. In Oracle parlance, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was competitive internally, but externally, like Oracle wanted to beat you. Here, I almost feel like, and again, I'm just putting myself in your shoes, the market is so big. Doesn't it almost feel like a mistake to be competitor focused? It feels like to me when you're growing in the 30s and 40s at almost 10 billion of revenue in the next few quarters, like, doesn't it feel like to you, like, what's the point of worrying about anyone else? Like, there's plenty. There's so much opportunity. The biggest thing that we worry about always is not what's the competition doing, But what's the big problems that are coming out that people want to get solved? I'll give you a super specific example to illustrate. Three years ago when I joined, if you asked the average executive or CIO or anyone in technology, is cloud less secure than your on-premise data centers? Everybody's like, definitely. Cloud is less secure. And over the last several years, as cybersecurity attacks have grown and become a lot worse for people, they've realized, hey, we're competing as a cottage industry, as my little company with a little collection of tools against like super sophisticated attackers. We've always felt, why is it that companies find cyber breaches? If you ask the average company that was breached, did you know day before yesterday that you actually had a security vulnerability? The average person would say, definitely not. I thought I was 100% secure, and then I got breached. And you go, if every company is treating this as a black swan event, oh my God, I thought I was managing this, and now there's got to be a simpler, better way to do security, cybersecurity. So that's an example of listening and observing a need and then solving it in a unique way. And that's a lot of what we're trying to do at Google is looking not just at what 
do the competitors do? You have to be competitor aware, but you need to be customer obsessed. You have to understand not just what are they saying, because customers explain what they want. They don't tell you what they need because they don't know how you might solve the problem. Do you see what I mean? And I, I ask people, what happens if there was a way that you could design your systems so you, can, you would never be breached? Is that possible? And if you did, how would you design it? And wouldn't people love that if that were possible? Then that's the thing that when you look at some of the problems, how do you come up with a new conception of a solution to a customer? That's a lot of what we're doing. And I know I got to wrap up with you soon. I have a couple more and then we'll get you out of here. One of the few tweets you've ever put out, which was four years ago, and I think it was replying to someone, was that one of the books that you recommended was Carl Sandburg's Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Do you like that book? I love that book. Why? It's a story of, you know, of a great man. Why do you say that? What do you admire about? He was a person, first of all, who was so important to America, but more importantly, the values he stood for. And the challenges he overcame, I mean, what a great story. Yeah. What a great story. I bought it as soon as I read that. When CEOs come to you now, what's the most common question when they want to confide in you in something? What's the thing that CEOs are generally struggling with the most? They're really trying to understand how to make their business digital. Every CEO, take banks as a very simple example, right? How often do you go to a bank? I wish more. No, never. 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 Right? never. And so the question is, if you never went to your bank, how risky is it for the bank that you bank with to have you as a customer? Because for them, you almost see them as an opaque thing. So you and I used to go to stores. I certainly did. Maybe you didn't. When we went to the store when I was growing up in India, you had no idea whether the product they would even have. And even when I came to America, you went to the mall a lot of the times and you're like, oh my God, I, go, I drove all the way here and they don't have the product. And then e-commerce came along. And today, people know they can search and find a product and know it's available before they go. And by the way, the company also knows what you're looking for. So even though there's this view that digital technology kind of keeps you away from going to the physical store... The reality is the company knows you, the retailer knows you a lot more personally, and they know you a lot better. And so all kinds of institutions, I just gave the example of banks, but communication companies and everyone else is now wrestling with like car companies. They're trying to understand when they give you an electric vehicle, they want to know how you drive it, where you go, how long distance are you going, et cetera, to make it an exceptional experience. And today, they largely deal with you when you buy the car and when you go to the technician for repair. And that happens so infrequently. So the problem that most CEOs talk to us on is, how can I use technology to go faster, to understand my customer, to improve my organization, to bring my people together? And that's what our company does exceptionally well. And that's why they call us to help them. No doubt. Well, I appreciate you. I always end these things the same way. The first is, are you hiring? Yes, we are. Kind of a loaded question. Yes, we are. are. How do you apply? Is there any key roles that you want to shout out? We're hiring engineers. We're hiring salespeople. We're hiring people in our services organization that support customers as they use it. And 
you know, it's super simple. Go to our recruiting website at Google and you can find the cloud section and it's super easy to apply. I didn't think you were going to say send you a Twitter DM. I didn't think that was going to work. <laughs> um, last one. Um, when, you th- <laughs> when you think of the word grit, what do you think of? Grit, I think of the struggle to make something great happen. TK, appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.